Today's scripture comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, and verse 15. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to again welcome you to our Sunday service. This summer, we've been going through a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Now, why are the Ten Commandments so special? These commandments are special because they were not created by men. These aren't like the laws of the land, which were crafted and agreed upon by lawmakers or voted on by citizens. These were spoken and written by God himself to his people. And what's very often the case is that when something is created, it reveals something about the creator. So as a parent, I am constantly marveling at how much of myself and my wife can be seen in our children. You know, mannerisms, behaviors, attributes that weren't taught but imprinted upon them by nature. And we see this also with artists, with writers, with musicians. They create works of art that display not just their talent, but their thoughts, their emotions, their impressions. The Ten Commandments, then, display the character of God. He has poured himself into his law... And the laws are based on his character. So what we've been saying is that while oftentimes rules and laws are seen as burdensome and inhibiting, the Ten Commandments are not only necessary, but they're good. You know, Plato, in one of his famous dialogues, he posed this ancient dilemma. He said, does God command the law because the law is good? Or is the law good because God commands it? So in other words, he's saying, did God see the law and say, ooh, this is pretty good, I'll I'll recommend that. Or did the law become good when God commanded it? And the answer that we see in the Bible is both. Both. The law is good, and it springs forth from the goodness of God's character. The Ten Commandments are good because God is good, And his goodness is displayed in every aspect of the commandments. So in the New Testament, Jesus summarizes the law of Moses, and he states that there are basically two great commandments. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. So in the Ten Commandments, we see this structure. The first four commandments, they deal specifically with the first great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then commandments 5 through 10, they kind of pivot and focus generally on the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But even in commandments 5 through 10, the horizontal command to love your neighbor, it extends out of your love for God. The two commands, love God and love neighbor, They're not separate, but they go hand in hand. And that's important to keep in mind as we look at the next commandment. Today we come to the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. 
And what this commandment reveals is that the God who gave this commandment is our creator and provider. So it's not that we all have our own things and are forbidden then to take from one another, but it's more that everything already belongs to God and therefore we don't have the right to take what he has given to someone else. So we look at the Eighth Commandment, and I want to try to answer three questions today. The first is, what is the Eighth Commandment prohibiting? Second, what is the Eighth Commandment promoting? And third, what is the Eighth Commandment pointing to? First, what is the Eighth Commandment prohibiting? Now, on the surface, it seems very clear. Don't steal. But what does steal really mean? The Hebrew word for stealing is ganaf. And it literally means to carry something away as if by stealth. A more technical definition would be to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. But I think what often happens, especially with these later commandments, is that we associate each commandment with its most obvious prohibition. So two weeks ago, we looked at the command, you shall not murder, and immediately your mind goes to cold-blooded murder, shooting, stabbing, etc. Or with the command against adultery, you, you kind of naturally imagine the worst extension of it, physically cheating on a spouse. And the same is true of stealing. When you hear this command, your mind kind of conjures up this image of a burglar in a mask sneaking around a house. Or bank robbers, or carjackers, or pickpockets. And the Hebrew word ganaf, it really, it, it certainly covers all of those things and even more. So burglary, robbery, larceny, hijacking, shoplifting, purse snatching. But it also goes further. It covers a wide range of more exotic and complex thefts, such as embezzlement, Extortion, racketeering, and kidnapping. But with all of these examples of stealing, most of us, most of us, can disassociate ourselves from such temptations easily, right? I can't remember the last time I hijacked a plane. Most of us can easily say we haven't even come close to committing any of these crimes. So we're good. In a recent poll conducted by George Barna, he polled Christians, nearly 90% of evangelical Christians claim that they never break the Eighth Commandment. 90%. But can we take a moment to take an honest look at our lives? I think it won't take long for us to see that every single one of us is in some way or other on the take, we, we've all stolen or at the very least been tempted to steal on a daily basis. Let me give you some examples just off the top of my head. Have you ever tried to underpay your taxes? Have you ever copied homework or failed to cite a source properly? Have you ever used a sick day when you're not sick? Have you ever wasted time at work when you owe your employer your productivity? Have you ever engaged in less than ethical practices, either at work or at school? 
Have you ever racked up credit card debt that you're not quite sure how you're going to repay? Have you ever downloaded a movie or music illegally? Or, and this is a lot of you, have, do you use someone else's Netflix account instead of paying for your own? I know that in just these examples, I've pretty much covered the entire room. And even now, if you feel as though you have not committed or broken the Eighth Commandments, then come talk to me after service, and I promise you I'll find something. <laughs> there are so many ways to steal, and we've all done it. And we justify it. We tell ourselves that it's nothing. It's not a big deal, to the point where we don't feel bad at all. We say things like, it's not hurting anybody, or everybody's doing it. You know, now that Pastor Aaron and I are in our late 20s, um, we're, 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 we're wiser and more mature than we once were. But there was a time when we were younger and more foolish. I remember we went to the movies once, and... Um, the movie ended, and I went to the bathroom, and I, I come out of the bathroom, and Aaron is nowhere to be seen. I don't know where he went. So I figured, oh, he must have gone out to the car. So as I'm kind of leaving the theater, I hear a voice behind me going, Psst, Gene, Gene, over here. And I turn around, and I, I can't see him, and then finally I see his head peeking out of a theater. And he has this huge smile on his face, and he's waving me over. And it's so clear to me that he has absolutely never done this in his life. <laughs> he's being so secretive, and I'm just thinking, bro, nobody cares. <laughs> and it's funny because Aaron is usually my moral conscience, and I'm usually the one leading him astray, but this was one time when I felt like Adam taking the forbidden fruit from Eve. And I will confess that I took the fruit and we watched the second movie. So even your pastors are thieves. And if the Eighth Commandment was just about the horizontal, take away the vertical, if it's just about the horizontal, then yeah, I guess we weren't really hurting anybody. Right? The movie would have played whether or not we went into that theater. And it's not like that theater was packed and we were taking someone else's seat. And yeah, a lot of people do it. But in each commandment, the horizontal is an extension of the vertical. So what that means is as Christians, we can't think in strictly utilitarian terms. We can't, we can't be the arbiters of, oh, well, this law makes sense because it, it's, it's protecting people from hurting others, so then I will obey it. Stealing... Any form of stealing, it begins with a rejection and a rebellion against God. So before stealing is ever an action of the hands, it is a condition of the heart. You know, in one of the biggest stand scandals of the Old Testament, and there were a lot of scandals there, King David steals another man's wife. And then he sexually assaults her, and then he has her husband killed. He does terrible things, and unlike the ways in which we commonly steal, people got very, very hurt. 
But when David, after a while, finally confesses in Psalm 51, he prays this to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you, God, and you only. Well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? I think what David's saying here is that when we steal, it is symptomatic of a much deeper, much more problematic condition. So what is at the heart of stealing? We want to kind of trace it to its root. What is at the root of theft? You know what? It's the heart of a two-year-old. Do you know what every two-year-old's favorite word is? Mine. Mine. Last week, my two-year-old Caleb, he asked me for a dessert. He asked me for a treat. He said, can I have a treat, Appa? And I said, sure. What do you want? And I thought he'd say um, ice cream or chocolate or lollipop or candy. You know what his answer was? All of it. The whole thing. I hold it. That's the heart. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, you can have whatever you want in the garden. Eat from any tree, but this one tree in the middle of the garden, that one you must not eat from. That one is not yours. And Eve was tempted by the serpent. She looked at the fruit, and she probably thought, it's not a big deal. It's just fruit. It won't hurt anybody. It's just fruit. And then Adam thought, probably, everybody's doing it. Well, at least everyone in the garden, right? Everybody else is doing it. But do you know why that sin was so, was a big deal, was such a big deal? Because there was a, a more sinister and malevolent intention, temptation, raging underneath it all. And it was that of a two-year-old. What God is giving me is not enough. I want it all. The whole thing. Mine. When we steal, we're essentially mistrusting God, the provider, who will give us his very best. The way God designed the garden, it was very simple. Everything belongs to God. He gives us his very best, and then he asks that we give him our best. But in sin, we don't believe God gives us his best, and therefore we take and we take and we take. So another way to look at stealing is to see it not just as taking what doesn't belong to you, but it's also treating what's God's as though it's your own. So in the book of Malachi, the whole point of the book of Malachi, God is very upset with his people. And here's why God was upset. They were bringing God offerings as required, but rather than bringing him their best, the first fruits or the firstborn, they offer God sacrifices that are blemished, that are diseased, that are deformed. Basically the stuff that no one else wants, the stuff that they can't sell anyway. 
And they're trying to unload these things as sacrifices to God. And God rebukes his people, and he asks them this, would you dare offer these to your governor? I'm not a governor, I'm a king. I'm a great king. How dare you? On the first page of your bulletin, I, I, I have a few verses from Malachi. Here's what God says. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. God tells his people that by treating their resources as theirs, rather than ultimately God's, they're robbing him. And this word robbing, it's different from the one that we see in the commandment. This word means to take or plunder violently. It's basically to beat and to take violently. God's saying, that's what you're doing to me. You know, we think in terms of, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not hurting anybody. But to God, it is a big deal. God says, you're robbing me. You're stealing from me violently. Stealing isn't just taking someone else's things, but it begins by seeing even your own things as ultimately yours and not God's. Because we're meant to be stewards of God's things, and we rob him when we treat those things like they're ours. The second question we're trying to answer today is what is the Eighth Commandment promoting? The answer is stewardship and generous giving. You see, the commandment doesn't just have a prohibition. It's not just a negative, but it promotes a positive. It's not enough for us not to steal. We also need to be good stewards and generous givers. A steward is someone who cares for someone else's property. He's not free to use it however he pleases. So an investment banker, for example, can't use funds that she's supposed to manage as though they were her own. Or a valet can't take a vehicle that he's supposed to park out for a joyride. Whatever we possess is God's. It's his property. And he has given us the task of looking after it. And this is the way it's been since the beginning. Adam didn't own the Garden of Eden. He didn't own any real estate there. He was just called to manage it. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So what does it mean to be a good steward? Well, many things, but here's just a few. I think, first of all, it means to work hard rather than being lazy. It also means to take care of what we've been given. This means being smart not being wasteful. So I want to ask you, how are you using your time? How are you using your money? Are you wasting it or are you saving it? Are you using it primarily for yourself, for your own pleasures, for your own interests, or are you generously giving to others? The second quote on the first page of your, of your bulletin um, it's by Jerry Bridges, and I love how he says it. It's so simply. Here's what he says. 
There are three attitudes that we can have toward money and possessions. First, what's yours is mine, I will take it. What's mine is mine, I will keep it. And what's mine is God's, I will share it. The first attitude is that of the thief. The second is that of the typical person, including, sad to say, many Christians. The third attitude is the one each of us should seek to put on. It's not enough not to steal. We must also learn to share. Which of these three is your attitude? How do you view the money and the possessions of others? And how do you view your own money and possessions? Are you being a good steward with what he has given you? Are you giving generously to the church, to the global work of the gospel? Are you giving to the poor in your community and around the world? And the last question that I want us to look at is what does the Eighth Commandment point to? I think it points ultimately to our treasure. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember, sin says, mine. Sin makes us take our eyes off of God and onto his gifts. We end up wanting God's things rather than God himself. And we forget that God himself is the greatest gift. And we desire the lesser things of God more than God himself. So let me give you a hypothetical that I heard John Piper once give. Um, And we've had more than a few couples from our church getting engaged or married recently, so I think it's fitting. Here's what he says. What if you gave an engagement ring? So you've been in love for two years maybe, and now you're going to move this thing decisively forward. You give a ring. And I'm assuming you're a man, but ladies, you applied in the appropriate way. So you give your fiancé a beautiful diamond ring, and she spends the rest of the night and the following weeks bragging about this gift. She takes it and she shows it to everybody, but she never calls you. She never looks at you. She never takes you by the hand and looks you in the eye. She's just thrilled with the diamond, but your intent in giving it to her was totally missed. How would you feel about that? You wanted her to look at it. Oh, yes, you wanted her to love it. You wanted her to be thankful for it. You wanted her to enjoy it. And then you wanted her to put it on her hand, take your hand across the table, look you in the eye and say, I would love to spend the rest of my life with you. You are 10,000 times more precious to me than this beautiful ring. Where's your treasure? Is it in earthly things? Education, career, beauty, relationships, pleasure, comfort, reputation, wealth, etc.? Well, if this is the case, and the Bible tells us that those treasures will eventually either be stolen or destroyed. It's a bad investment. 
So here's the million dollar question. How do we change? How do we make God our treasure? The answer is, it's not by trying really hard to be generous. Okay, it's, it's not, hey, I'm going to go home this week and I'm going to be the most generous person in the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give and I'm going to be a good steward and I'm never going to be selfish and steal ever again. Nor is it a good idea for us to make you feel guilty because guilt is not a very good motivator. It doesn't last. The answer is to discover the greater treasure. The treasure that's buried in a field and the man goes and he sells everything he has so that he can buy that field. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19? Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was very wealthy. Now, tax collection back then, it was, it was pretty much a criminal enterprise. Zacchaeus was hated because he was in league with the Romans. He helped the Romans collect taxes. And in doing so, he lined his pockets by taking money from his own people on his way to riches. He was a glorified thief. In fact, he was the chief tax collector, the Bible tells us. And you can be sure that he broke the Eighth Commandment almost on a daily basis. And the story of Zacchaeus' conversion, it is astonishing. So what happens? Well, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to Jericho, where Zacchaeus lived. And crowds line the streets just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And Zacchaeus, remember, he's famously short. He can't see over the crowd. So he climbs a sycamore fig tree to get a better view of Jesus. And you can kind of imagine what he was feeling. He sees Jesus in the distance, and Jesus comes closer and closer. And Zacchaeus' heart begins to beat faster and faster. His palms begin to sweat as Jesus approaches him. And you know, Zacchaeus can barely breathe when Jesus stops right underneath his tree. Jesus looks up and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down from there, for I must go to your house today. And Zacchaeus, he scrambles down the tree. He stands before Jesus and he is a completely changed man. He, he blurts out, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my wealth to the poor. If I've cheated anybody, I'll pay back four times the amount. Do you hear what he's saying and do you hear how he's saying it? He went from being a criminal who lived his life with the attitude of my two-year-old. Mine, all mine, the whole thing. But his attitude changes. You know, I hate it when I hear my two-year-old Caleb say mine because this always leads to him and his older brother Andy fighting and one or both of them crying, always. But do you know what my favorite thing to hear from Caleb is? When Caleb wants to show me something, he says, look at me. Look, Appa, look at me. He wants to impress me. He wants to make me laugh. 
He wants to please me. This is Zacchaeus' new two-year-old attitude. It went from mine to, look, Lord, look. Look at me. Here and now, I give half my goods to the poor. If I've cheated anyone, I'll pay back four times the amount. Whatever I can do to please you. Look, Lord, are, are you happy? Is, is, is that okay? Zacchaeus has found a, a new, a better treasure, Jesus. And Jesus is so much better to him than anything he has ever known. He, he's able to just throw his old life away. It's, it's nothing to him. He's found someone, something, so much better. And the crazy thing is that Zacchaeus didn't even know the half of it. Because in, in, in Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho to go to Jerusalem. And why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? Well, in Jerusalem, Jesus will be crucified, get this, between two thieves. Two thieves, two people who are just like Zacchaeus. The last quote in your bulletin is by Martin Luther. And here's what he says. A magistrate regards someone as a criminal and punishes him if he catches him among thieves, even though the man has never committed anything evil or worthy of death. Christ was not only found among sinners, but of his own free will and by the will of his Father, he wanted to be an associate of sinners, having assumed the flesh and blood of those who were sinners and thieves and who were immersed in all sorts of sin. Therefore, when the law found him among thieves, it condemned and executed him as a thief. Jesus freely associates with sinners and thieves, and on the cross, he dies as a sinner and a thief for you and for me. Because we've all broken the Eighth Commandment. We've all stolen from our neighbor. And even if you haven't, you've stolen from God. We haven't been good stewards. We haven't been generous givers. The law declares us guilty and labels us thieves. But Jesus takes our place on the cross. He dies the criminal's death that we should have died. He faithfully stewards what God has given him, his people. And he gave generously to us his own life, his very best. Can you think of any treasure that's more valuable than that? Is there a better gift than Jesus, the giver himself? And if God has given us his only son, should we ever doubt that he will continue to provide for us everything we need? He already gave us his best. What's he not going to give us? He will give us everything we need. So let us find in Jesus our true treasure. And may we joyfully and gratefully live 
to obey the eighth commandment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your very best. Even when we have said time and time again, mine, and we have tried to take, we thank you, Lord, that you have given. You have given us far more than we deserve. You have given us your very best, your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that he would become our treasure. That like Zacchaeus, we would have a new heart. A heart that doesn't try to steal or take, but a heart that is so thankful and a heart that gives. So change us. Help us to obey this eighth commandment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.